You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today we have James Null, real estate investor and realtor out of Edmonton region of Alberta, focused on scaling his portfolio in Edmonton to more than 300 door, high performance realtor, closing and selling hundreds and hundreds of deals. How are you, James? I'm fantastic, Adam. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm excited to be here. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks so much for being with us today, and I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love uh, love having these great conversations about multifamily investing, the Edmonton market, real estate in general. I'm excited to get started. Thanks a lot. So, James, your career as a realtor, I think, on Edmonton market was an edge to scale your business. But before we start, can we go back to the beginning as a realtor and investor? What was the motivation to focus on multifamily? Well, the reason I transitioned into multifamily, I actually started investing in single family properties when I was quite young, in my early 20s. And I knew that the logical progression in my mind was to grow into a larger, more complex, more expensive asset class, which was multifamily. So I always knew multifamily was on the horizon. I had goals, hopes, and dreams of acquiring multifamily assets. I didn't really know how long it would take me to get there, but I knew I would get there eventually. And by the eighth year, of being in investing. So eight years after I bought my first property is when I bought my first 12 unit apartment building and made the jump into multifamily. And then after that, um, I've acquired now 14 multifamily buildings in my portfolio. And, um, you know, I was keeping my eyes open for the next one. So what is your target market? Uh, like, uh, uh, it is basically based on the cab rate, uh, cash on cash, uh, because I think the issue is Edmonton, so far as appreciation is not too much on the last 15 years. So how you target your market? Yeah, that's absolutely right. The appreciation at Edmonton has been quite slow, quite small. There's no doubt about that. Um, but we choose our markets based on location within Edmonton. Yeah. Um, even though Edmonton as a conglomerate hasn't really been appreciating, the city of Edmonton is investing big dollars into large-scale infrastructure to improve certain areas of the city. Mm. And so we're looking at where those infrastructure dollars are being spent and then acquiring properties that are within walking distance of those infrastructure improvements. Because ultimately, even if the city doesn't improve at a certain pace, uh, we know that property near the infrastructure does historically still grow, even in when the Edmonton market in total is a little bit slower. So the main piece of infrastructure we look for LRT, which stands for light rail transit, it's our train, you know, yeah. metro line. So it just helps people get around. It makes those areas of the city more accessible and it drives property value in those areas. So we, the city of Edmonton has a 20 year plan for where they want to be building this infrastructure. And we just very purposefully and conscientiously buy properties within walking distance of metro lines. And that, that's my strategy. You know, it's the location I find is more important than the numbers because I find that the numbers take care of themselves when the location is desirable. Hmm. So you're focusing in which class, basically, class B or class C? On I would say a lot of it's class B, or if we do get a class C building in a B, in a B area, area. then yeah. we, inv we invest into doing the renovations to improve the building to a B building. I wouldn't say we own any A assets. It's, it's all very solid B assets. 
Okay. Uh, uh, regarding the actual numbers itself, I see a lot of deals on, on, on Menton, but I see that the, the cap rate is going down and down because of the actual inflation and so far. So mm-hmm. what is the, the, the making sense number right now? What, what is the actual number now for the cap rate when you're looking for deals? I found like some deals on Edmonton is 3.5 and 4%, which it doesn't make sense because when That's you're quite low, going yeah. to... Edmonton, your your goal always is going to be the cash flow. I would agree with that sentiment. Yeah, I mean, in Edmonton, the core value proposition is finding properties that do post good quality cash flow. Because yeah. you're absolutely right when you say that you know Edmonton doesn't typically appreciate as fast as the other market, so it has to have a benefit to make up for that, and that benefit is cash flow. Yeah. When we're looking at at properties, we we want cap rates in the fives you know, low to mid fives. If something is in the sixes, that's a pretty good indicator that it's now a C asset yeah. in a, that's either a poor condition of a building, poor location, or a combination of the two, mm-hmm. which is a little past our comfort zone. So, you know, for us, like low to mid fives is typically what we're seeing for the asset class we're going after, which are, you know, B assets or C assets and B locations. Okay. So what is the challenge so far with the Edmonton market right now? Uh, I'm, I'm asking you this because other market is already really challenging. And I think many investors moving to the West side, Saskatchewan, Alberta, of course, mm-hmm. not at, uh, Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, they're trying to focus on the cash flow. So what was, uh, I think, the challenge for you on the last three years? Or you don't have any challenges on, on finding deals? Yeah, I mean, well, the ch- finding deals is definitely a challenge. Good deals are always hard to come by in any market. So, you know, the deal readiness is always an important factor. If, if you're unable and don't have the capacity to act quickly on a good deal, somebody else will. So that's, that, that challenge never goes away. In Edmonton, the challenge is because the market is, you know, slower, you have to be, there's not a lot of elasticity in rents, especially in the asset class that we're in. If you try to raise the rent by even $25, that can be a reason for somebody to move to a less expensive building. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's very, very tight on the numbers. And even though the cash flow is solid, um, the lack of appreciation is constantly a challenge because, you know, in, in other markets, you know, your building is going to go up by several hundred thousand dollars in a year. 100%. And so you have equity there to play with if you need to do expensive renovations, improvements, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in Edmonton, the values stay relatively static. So even though you are accumulating a bit of cash flow, you have to be very mindful of the property management because there isn't a constant addition of equity value to then refinance and pull from to constantly reinvest into the building. So a very prudent strategy is to be, it's a little more cash intensive if you're buying buildings that aren't just brand new, because Typically, the equity isn't appreciating fast enough to have um, funds available to do expensive improvements. And with older buildings, that typically happens. So while the, the appreciation being low creates an environment where the affordability is really high or really low, sorry, the affordability index is high, therefore the cash flow is high. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, high cash flow can only add up to so much. You know, in a 20-unit building, if you're cash flowing you know, $100 per door per month, that's $2,000 a month, you know, that's maybe twenty to $25,000 a year. One boiler replacement or two or three suites that need to be completely renovated will take that, that total profit margin up. Whereas, you know, 
if your property goes up by a couple hundred thousand dollars in a year, you can refinance and use that hundred thousand dollars to do whatever you like. 100%. So, you know, every market has its pros and cons. Edmonton, if you buy a building that is in good repair, stable, you've got a decent cash reserve, you cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, which is really nice. Um, other markets, it's very hard to be to get cash flow, but you're seeing equity appreciation in the value of the building. So this is okay. Then um, I think force appreciation is not an easy. Whatever you're saying is like there's no an actual strategy to do burr or force appreciation to raise the rent and then take advantage of raising the actual value of the building because you're saying that's is not going to work. Well, no. What I'm saying is. Burr is actually one of the most popular strategies in Edmonton yeah. because, you know, in, in Vancouver, for example, you can buy an old building in bad shape, yeah. wait a year and you have appreciation in Edmonton. You buy that same old building and you wait a year. It's probably going to be worth roughly the same amount, maybe a little bit more. Hmm. So in Edmonton value added renovations and Burr is one of the most popular things that people do here specifically because if the market isn't going to create appreciation for you, you create appreciation for yourself by doing 100%. those renovations. Yeah. So the value add proposition is very, very strong in Edmonton. Yeah. And that gets, that gets added to by the fact that there's no GS, there's no PST in Edmonton. There's only GST. Yeah. Only 5%, there, I think. Only 5%. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. I mean, every, every hour of contractor time, every building material, everything, is you know six to ten percent less expensive than it would be in other markets in the country because it's only five percent GST. So that's that's a really nice perk and it makes you know so doing these you're work. saving the HST. You're saving the HST. You're not uh, paying any great. HST. Yeah. 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 And on a hundred thousand dollar renovation, that adds up. Yeah. You know, that's 100%. that's yeah. a lot of money that's a lot of money that can go to your bottom line. Um, so you know we have so Edmonton's a great environment for Burr. In addition to that, the landlord tenant laws in Edmonton are much more landlord friendly. So for example, if you bought, um, let's say you buy an old building, 20 units, and most of the units on, in that building are on fixed term leases that are set to expire or month to month leases. Yeah. In Edmonton, you only need to give 90 days notice to um, terminate a month to month tenancy. So if you buy an old building and you wanna do a proper renovation, change the dynamic of the building, renovate every suite, up the tenant profile, up the rents to do that value add that we've been talking about. You're not handcuffed by old leases. You can just, any tenant that's on month to month, you give them 90 days notice. Okay, we want the suite vacated. And then with any fixed term lease, at the end of the term, the lease automatically ends. There's no legal obligation to renew month to month at the end of a fixed term lease. So you get to be much more quick and fluid and agile if you want to reposition a building in Edmonton. So, you know, that it's actually much, much more popular to do that type of project because number one, it's cheaper to do it from a tax perspective. Number two, it's easier to do it from a landlord perspective. And number three, it's really the smartest thing to do because you can't count on the market to improve in value. So mm. you've got to roll up your sleeves and create your own appreciation. Yeah, because you're because the market itself is investor friendly. There's no rent control. Exactly. You can do an actual eviction within, as you know, as you said, ninety days to do an actual renovation or add value. So you're forcing that as a, as a building. Yeah. You're able to go back and do the refinance and eventually increase the NOI and and so on. Yeah. Uh, 
going back to your portfolio, so what is your focus right now? Uh, old buildings, new building, new construction, redevelopment. What is your niche right now? The the last few. So I I built my portfolio with old buildings yeah. and renovated old buildings. And old buildings, you know, the the challenge with old buildings is no matter how much you renovate them there's still typically repairs and maintenance that come up on a fairly regular basis. And so they're a little more management intensive because you have two layers of communication. Layer number one is the tenant mentioning a repair that's needed. Layer number two, communicating with the contractor to repair the, to repair the maintenance item. Even if you have a property manager, you're going to hear about, you know, it's like the property manager will say, the tenant said, this needs to be fixed. What do you want us to do? Then they get you the quote. Then you have to approve the quote. Then you have to review the work that's been completed. Then you pay the invoice. So, you know, like there's, there's a lot of management that goes into older buildings that's hmm. time consuming. And so there's a lot of older buildings in my portfolio, like hundreds of units worth of older buildings. And so to balance out my portfolio and to add assets that while they may not cash flow as much, that are much easier to manage, hmm. I've started buying brand new buildings and or building brand new buildings that are designed for um, investors to be income producing. So you're, you're moving to the development side or buying new construction and Both. partnering with, so you're partnering with developers or you're doing an actual development by yourself? Or both. Um, okay. Right now I'm building a sixplex on a corner lot in Edmonton, yeah. brand new sixplex. And uh, we're using the CMHC program for affordable housing to build it. So it's very, very lucrative from a lending perspective. Yeah. Um, the, the last building I bought, I bought from a developer Hmm. who, um, you know, I think they, they overextended themselves and got motivated. They bought one big lot, subdivided it into two lots, hmm. built two houses side by side. Each house had a secondary suite in the basement. So okay. four, to four total units now on this, on this piece. And, uh, you know, it was, it was typically in Edmonton over the Christmas period, the wind, the market really slows down and we see a lot of, um, a lot of vendors get pretty motivated. So I had been watching these houses. They'd been sitting on the market for about three or four months. The market started to cool down into winter. And I just talked to the developer and said, hey, can we work a deal? I'll buy both houses, but you got to give me a really, really special price in order mm. for me to do this. I'll mm. close really quick. You'll have money in the bank for Christmas holidays, but I want to see a special price. Otherwise, I'm not, I don't, I love it enough at a really good price. I don't love it at market value. So are, yeah. are you, if I take both of these off your hands and end your headache, you know, are you willing to sell these to me at a good deal? And they said, ah, you know what? Yeah, we just want these off our books. We want to go into the new year fresh, you know? And so I got a really, really, really great deal on buying both of them side by side. So that's the kind of thing where I'm willing to be patient and choosy. And then if something really special comes along, um, I'll pick it up. Whereas earlier in my career, I was so focused on growth that I just wanted to find the next deal, wanted to find the next deal, wanted to find the next deal. Now, when the deal comes to me, that matches my criteria, checks every box, um, you know, I'll move on it. So I've slowed down quite a bit in terms of my pace of acquisition. Uh, but, you know, my portfolio is at a size that I'm really happy with. And so there's only room in my portfolio for amazing deals that uh, are easy to come by as opposed to so, constant. Go ahead. So right now, what is the price of uh, the, the reconstruction? Like, I think right now the old... Uh price in Edmonton around 110, 120, uh, where is the actual pre-construction 250, 300. So what is the good price for you? What type of a unit are you talking about? Because um, 
just just to make sure we're on the same page. Apartment buildings. Oh, per per door for apartment buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that just for reference, the houses I bought, the the retail market value would have been about five sixty five per house, and I got them for five hundred each. So is but but it's have a secondary suite already. So it's yeah, two that's units. that's a that's a large two thousand square foot house with a thousand square foot secondary suite. That's a big one. Yeah. So yeah, it's a big house. Just you know, right place, right time, right deal. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I I got lucky, and the developer needed to sell, so it worked out perfectly. Um, 100%. Yeah, I mean, th those are nice when those happen. Um, for apartment buildings, C grade older apartment buildings are going to be around one hundred to one hundred and ten. The B grade stuff that we're approaching is going to be 120 to 140. Hmm. Um, and then if you're approaching, you know, like A grade older will be 160, 170. And then A grade brand new, um, A grade, A grade brand new will be in the low 200s. And then, um, you know, I mean, institutional, yeah, yeah. there's a few high rises that change hands, but those are, you know, those are like trading at a. But the cap rate is going to be a disaster. No cash. Yeah. Rate. I mean, that's. You know, the average person listening to this podcast isn't buying a $50 million apartment high-rise, I don't think. 100%. 100%. So uh, because you opened the subject of the BNC, what is the challenging neighborhoods in Edmonton, especially yeah. if you're focusing on on adding value, uh, even if you add value and there's a, the rent price is too much, you're not going to find someone is paying you this rent on the yeah. C area. So what is the challenging neighborhoods in Edmonton? Yeah, the C the C areas in Edmonton, um, and maybe some listeners from Edmonton would debate me on some of these, but I think for the most part I'll hit the nail on the head. Would be the Alberta Avenue district up 82nd Avenue and down 18 or 82nd Street down 82nd uh, 118th Avenue. I would describe Cromdale as a C mm -hmm. area, um, as well as McDougal Macaulay would be your C areas. Um, I think some people, what, right on the cusp would be Stony Plain Road. Some people would describe the property near Stony Plain Road as C. Some people describe it as B. Now, as we move into neighborhoods like Queen Mary Park, that would be on the, the cusp between C and B, depending on who you ask. And then as we get into solid B areas, um, I would describe West Jasper Place uh, as a B area. I would describe north side, north of the Yellowhead. That's mostly B areas. Um, I would describe ooh, maybe, maybe parts of like the far east of uh, King Edward Park would be a B area. And then the strong B areas, strong B would be like Inglewood up 124th Street. Strong B would be... Um, maybe maybe parts of the south side near Southgate Mall. And then A areas would be University area, Bonnie Dune area, Westmount Glenora area, um, those, and then downtown. Downtown is where you're going to see A as well. And then there's kind of a big gap in multifamily between the core of the city. And then as you get out to the very periphery of the city in the suburbs, mm -hmm. you'll see a lot of institutional buyers buying A-class assets where, you know, a developer would build a, couple hundred unit wood frame four-story building with the intention of selling off those condos individually. And then when the market turned, a lot of those institutional investors just started selling those buildings off, um, you know, 20, $30 million for the entire building hmm. to, uh, you know, as a class rental, rental inventory. Pretty, yeah. Yeah. 
this information is really like important because it's coming from experts like you you're a realtor you have a brokerage so uh we really appreciate this information because you know hey, better it's my pleasure you know I'm, I'm happy to be here just sharing this information about the city yeah. and if anybody who's listening wants to reach out to me I'm, I'm happy to chat i love talking about real estate all day long so yeah, uh, you know it's, it's my pleasure to share yeah 100 so the next question is what is the business motivation to switch to the new world average price financing or return on investment because eventually um, you're looking for yeah scaling i would say from my perspective it's actually return on time um hmm. uh you know if for example let's say I'll, t- I'll give you an example of two properties i have a 70 year old house in uh like hmm. in near the university area it's got an upstairs suite it's got a downstairs suite and i'd say probably at least once every two months something's breaking down hmm. the te- the you know the toilet's leaking the tap is dripping the light switch is broken this is broken that is broken i constantly hear about it and it's like it's not dramatic but it's just there's always something there's always something with an old house those two brand new houses side by side that i mentioned we have four tenants one two three four i haven't heard from any of them now in almost a year and the rent just appears in the bank account every month and because the houses are brand new under warranty nothing breaks nothing goes wrong nothing needs repair the kind of people that like to pay a little bit extra for brand new houses are typically people that are extra financially responsible mm-hmm. and you know it just takes care of itself and so that's that was kind of my motivation to switch to new inventory is mm-hmm. for the long term i'm able to add investment to my portfolio that requires no additional time commitment in any way whatsoever which is a priority for me at this point in my career. But I think that the only challenge on this point is, is adding value part because you cannot do refinance. So in your plan, you're not That's okay. looking for any pulling money to pay your if, investors because if uh, I buy I, a five, if I, my, my perspective is if I buy a $500,000 house, yeah. I know you want to talk some multifamily too. So, you know, let's add a zero. If I buy a $5 million building yeah. with, you know, 15 suites in it, in 20 years, that $5 million building will be worth $10 million. I put a million dollars down. And so I pay down $4 million of principal. I earn a million, $5 million in appreciation. That's $9 million on a $1 million investment in 20 years with yeah. no fuss, no drama, no time commitment, no headache, oh. no real issues. That works is, for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Uh, Getting back to this, so uh, when you're dealing with your, you're dealing with qualified investors or you're dealing with regular investors and in, in which kind of commitment, it's an actual GPLP or, or yeah, the regular so joint ventures? When I, when I raise capital for our commercial projects, <clears throat> we always set up a corporation, unanimous yeah. shareholders agreement. So we don't do the GPLP structure. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of colleagues and clients that have had a lot of success with that. We, I've, I just... You know, I, I set it up with a corporate structure. It seems to work better for our projects, but um, you know, there's there's a certain number of shares available. We divide up those shares based on each person's contribution to the project. Mm-hmm. Once the money's in the corporation, the corporation appro- gets the financing, buys the building. The corporation owns the building. The partners own the corporation, and we're good to go. Okay. Okay. And the commitment here, as you mentioned, ten years or five years. So, what is your approach usually? Five we do five, five five year terms oh, okay. and there's a there's a renewal slash exit option every five years because you know the average mortgage term is five years so it's just a nice round number okay and then if if there's an event at some point outside of that five-year term like the market 
has a big spike or you know there's a partner needs to exit early and they're willing to you know have a conversation about taking a little bit less because their exit is inconveniencing the rest of the partners like you know the conversation's always open but it's we i i've always done five years at a time for no other reason other than it just lines up with the average mortgage term okay so did you have this conversation a lot before like someone is trying to get out with before the five years We've had it happen a couple of times in my, in all my partnership agreements, we have an early exit clause hmm. where if somebody wants to exit early outside of that five-year term, then the remaining shareholders can purchase their shares for a 30% discount on market value. Oh, okay. Okay. Because of the so, inconvenience. Because of the inconvenience. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, if somebody has several hundred thousand dollars in the property, um, it's inconvenient to come up with several hundred thousand dollars on extremely short notice. So it's got to hmm. be, it's got to be worth it's got to be worth the inconvenience and the effort for the people buying out the shares to have to do something that's outside of the plan. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's happened, it's happened twice. Hmm. One time the investor ended up losing a little bit of money because the property had not gone up by 30% in value hmm. yet. Um, so I think they ended up losing like 5% on their money because we had about 25% growth at that time. But hmm. one time the person was more than happy because the property had gone up, you know, a ton in value. And by the time they took their 30% discount, they were still up and they were, you know, so it all worked out. 100%. So I will jump to a little bit, another subject, which is if we can talk about your largest deal so far, sure. what was the numbers, uh, the NOI, how you get the, the deal, uh, what was the upside about the, the, the actual deal, if you, if you can break it down? Yep. Yeah, I mean, the biggest deal so far uh, was a three three building portfolio purchase. Hmm. So there were there were three buildings with sixty seven units in total. Hmm. Um, two of the buildings we liked, one of the buildings we did not like. Hmm. And so, um, but you know, I think that the vendor knew that two of the buildings were good and one of them was bad. And so their strategy for unloading their worst building was to couple their best two with it, which hmm. you know, smart. Okay, yeah. we were willing to bite. Um, the uh, the cap rate. <clears throat> the cap rate at acquisition, this was a, a several years ago now. So we actually had about a 6.35, really uh, 6.25. Yeah, great mm -hmm. cap rate. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one of the buildings was completely stabilized, needed no work, needed no renovations. Rents were at market, <clears throat> you know, squeaky clean, happy with that building. One building that we liked was in a location that we liked. And remember, location is, you know, my number one criteria, um, was in a location that we liked. And so... Uh, it needed a bit of renovation, so we knew we could do something with it. Mm. And then um, the third building, the one we didn't like, was also, that needed quite a bit of renovation, but it was also in a location that we didn't love. But the market, but the rents were already below market, and there were comparables mm. in the area showing higher than market rent. So from a Burr perspective, from a flip perspective, it was a prime target. Yeah. So we looped it all together, created a strategic plan where we were pretty sure that if we improved the building we wanted to keep and improved and then sold the building we didn't want to keep, we should be able to raise enough funds on a refinance to repatriate all the, ca the capital for the mm. other two buildings. And it's like, okay, if we're, if we're willing to put in a year of really focused, dedicated effort, we might just be able to hold on to two buildings um, with very little, if not no money down. So, mm. okay. So we went, we went down that journey, did our massive renovations, repositioned a bunch of tenants and ended up selling, selling that one building. Um, the funds from that one building 
and the refinance of building number two. We didn't quite hit our goal of having no money in, but we mm -hmm. went from we went from about a million and a half dollars of equity in the property to about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of investor equity. So we were able to pay back about one point two five and mm -hmm. keep two fifty two fifty in, which was you know that was a big win because we ended up having you know two sizable apartment buildings for two hundred fifty thousand dollars in, and then the rest of the equity for the loan to value. Um, the rest of the equity for the loan to value just came from value that we added through the hard work that we did. So, you know, that's, that's a pretty good success story and happened to be our biggest deal. Um, so it was uh, how much? 6 million or more? Is a portfolio? Oh, it, the portfolio was about seven and a half million when we bought it. Okay. And the NOI, do you remember was like, I don't, I can't remember the NOI. Yeah, sure. I just, I remember the cap rate sticks out at about six and a quarter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is this a VTP or uh, you had to put uh, 25, 30% down? Uh, well, we, we use uh, mezzanine financing. So we put 1.5 down and mm. then we had a piece of about 2 million that was high interest. And then the rest was conventional. Oh, and then, okay. and then part, because the market was really hot at the time, the lenders were willing to lend on the after repair value. Mm. So you know, it was a, it was definitely a risky move because we borrowed, you know, a couple million dollars at almost double digit interest. But yeah. you know, it was a construction loan. We had a business plan in place. We were young and bold and willing to take the risk, and it worked out. So that's nice. But I think uh, if you don't mind, if you can explain the mezzanine financing option because it's, <clears throat> it's just a unique uh, lending pro process. Yeah. So if you can highlight it. Yeah, mez mezzanine a mezzanine in a building means it's like a second level. Like a, you walk up the stairs and there's a second level. So the reason the term mezzanine gets used for financing is it means multi-level financing. So this is just for all the listeners who are to do term for. So what mezzanine financing means is you have multiple levels of financing. So I'll just create an example. We want to borrow a million dollars and the higher your loan to value and the loan to value is how much money you borrow versus how much equity you put in. The higher the loan to value, the higher the lenders perceive the risk. And the higher the lenders perceive the risk, the higher the interest rate on that loan is going to be. Hmm. So if you put 40% down and borrow 60%, you're going to have very low interest. If you borrow 95% and put 5% down, it's very high risk. Your interest rate goes up. Yeah. Different lenders have different risk profiles. So that's where we get into this mezzanine, this multiple level financing. So you borrow 10 million. Lender number one, this is very low risk, very low interest rate. They're going to lend you 70%. Okay, lender number two, and let's say they lend you 70% at 3% interest. Lender number two says, we're a little more risky. We're a little more spicy. We're willing to go there. They'll lend you 10% at, say, 6% interest. Okay, so 70 plus 10, we're at 80. But we really want to push this thing. We really want to go hard. We want to put less money down. We find... You know, we find lender number three that says, you know what, we see what you're trying to do. We understand that you want to borrow some money to do this construction and renovation. We see that there's going to be an after repair value that gives us, gives us enough confidence in the deal that it's worth our time. We're going to lend you another 10% um, at say 11% interest. Okay. So we've got 70 at three, up to 80 at six, up to 90 at, what was the number I said? Is it 11? Let's say 11. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then the remaining 10 to get us to 100% of the purchase price is actual cash equity from the purchaser. So that is, that's a mezzanine debt. It's got multiple levels. 
And then you just do a little bit of proration math to figure out what the blended overall interest rate is over all of that money. Because you're not borrowing it all at 11. You're not borrowing it all at three. You're not borrowing it all at six. You're borrowing different pieces at different amounts, which creates a, an, a conglomerated interest rate. So that, that financing strategy is popular when, as an investor, you want to put less money down. Mm. And potentially if you have construction aspirations, because it doesn't make sense to borrow high interest debt in the long term, but in the short term, it can make sense to borrow high interest money that allows you to do a big scale project renovation, add value to the building, and then you refinance. The equity you get from the refinance allows you to pay back the expensive debt and create an overall loan to value that's palatable for a long-term piece of debt at a low interest rate. That's the general strategy. Yeah, because the expenses of the, this loan is going to be high. I think the challenge always with mezzanine also is the, the size of the project itself. So is he not going to do this on $1 million project? We always look for three to four million projects with, as you mentioned, a hundred percent on on an added value project when you can add value and do a refinance in six to twelve months and pull the money out. So yeah. I agree. 100%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. Institutional lenders, it needs to be worth their while. Nobody wants to lend a hundred thousand dollars for four months at eleven percent interest. They're not going to make any money by the time they pay the lawyer fees and just go through all of the work of you know, approving the loan and lending you the money. It's like, that's a lot of work to do for a couple thousand bucks of interest. So usually mezzanine financing only exists at the commercial scale yeah. because the dollars involved need to be long, large enough for this to actually be a worthwhile effort for the 100%. lender involved. Yeah, yeah. that's a yeah. really great point. Yeah. For the people out there listening, because you're focusing, I think, on uh, not on actual, uh, not all of the real project on, on adding value, but you're... Uh, or the appreciation. So I think the, the source of the money always is going to be raising capital. So for the people listening want to raise capital, how you manage to create your system for raising capital and what was the initial steps that like really yeah. make a different difference for you? Oh, the thing I did when I got started is just talk to literally anybody who would listen about real estate. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I knew I didn't have any skill. So instead of, instead of assuming I would have a high closing ratio, I just decided I would do it on volume. And I probably, oh, I probably had at least 50, maybe 60 conversations with potential joint venture partners hmm. before somebody was even remotely interested. Hmm. So that's, I mean, that's a lot. Think about sitting down with 60 different people to do a little conversation pitch or talk about real estate investing. I mean, for some people that might take a couple of years. I was super aggressive and that took me about eight months, hmm. you know, two to three people a week I would sit down with for coffee to talk real estate. And, you know, the first conversations were awkward and I didn't really know what I was talking about. And I was, you know, instead of, instead of having the mindset of trying to close, I just had the mindset of trying to learn. And I knew that every conversation would give me clues on what to say next time. And then, you know, by the time, by the time somebody said yes, I was in the mindset that everybody was going to say no. And I was actually like taken aback when they said they were interested. Cause I was like, oh, people have been saying no for so long. I forgot somebody might say yes eventually. I had, to be honest, I had this um, 80% on three months. 10 of them said it was me. Only four was interested. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Four, four for 80 is a pretty good ratio. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, it that's is not one, easy. one in 20 is pretty darn good if, if you're, if you're new at it. Yeah. 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 So as you mentioned, your business model rely on, on, on GVs, not a GP. Can you tell me why you approach this kind of approach legal, legal wise? Because um, uh, did you have a problem with security laws because presenting the deals and all of this? Uh, 
weird yeah. subject? Yeah. Uh, so we do have a corporate structure. Yeah. It's just not a GPLP structure. It's more of a, a standard corporation where every shareholder is a director. Um, we've, you know, and it, everybody just has, and then the, the managing partners, which are, you know, myself, have class A shares and then all the investor partners have class B shares. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, it's, it's from a legal perspective, it's a very similar structure mm. um, from a tax perspective, the GPLP structure allows to have like flow through tax implications, but just based on my experience and based on the type of partners I've had, the corporate structure seems like it's worked well. Mm. And uh, that's typically because of, from a distribution perspective, um, I deal with a lot of partners who are more in it for the long term, so it's actually more tax advantageous to leave more money in the corporation for the long term, hmm. because we don't really pull distributions out. With a lot of my partnerships, we reinvest the cash flow into accelerated principal paydown, um, as opposed to doing cash flow distributions. And so, that's that's just been my flavor of investing. Um, at the very very early days, when I didn't think about growing into a larger entity, you know, we did personal joint ventures, you know, like oh, a okay. 15, 20 page joint venture document, you know, James Canal, the person is joint ventured with investor, the person it's all kept on the personal level, personal lending, personal mm -hmm. bank accounts. You know, it's, we run, you know, you, from a tax perspective, we, I guess we'd be a sole proprietorship. Um, it wasn't until we started doing uh, commercial deals that required corporate borrowing entities that, that we set up our first corporation. But yeah. once, you know, we did it a couple of times and once you get used to it, it's it's actually very similar to a joint venture agreement. Yeah. Just on the corporate side, the the legal document is called the unanimous shareholders agreement. But there's an there's like an 80% overlap in the content of the legal paperwork. I think there's a similar also approaches between, it's a bear trust, which is you have a corporation, but it's in your personal, uh, personal uh, taxes anyway. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, if I'm asking you, what is your superpower strength on the last 15 years on investing in real estate? What was uh, actual strength? Um, I would say one of my superpowers was just not giving up. I mm. mean, at the beginning, especially, um, I I had a very high capacity to just keep trying. So you know, I mean, you said you talked to 80 people. <laughs> that sounds like we have a similar superpower. You know, a lot of people will talk to four or five people, get four or five not interested, and then just pout and say, this doesn't work. I don't know why I'm trying and stop trying. So, you know, I think one of the most important superpowers for anybody starting out is just accept that you're going to have to try a lot before you make any progress. And it's going to feel like no progress, but learning feels like no progress because you see no results. And then all of a sudden you see results. So, you know, I mean, it's an underrated superpower, but just the ability to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying as you fail, 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 and learn, learn, learn. Um, easy to say in a podcast, very, very difficult to like have the emotional wherewithal to have another week of no success. Hmm. <sighs> okay. I'm talking to three more people this next week and just be okay with the process. You know, like that's, that's a, that's a very important superpower for anybody that's listening and probably one of the most important superpowers um, for any business venture, not just real estate. Yeah. And then, you know, I'd say, I'd say my other superpower is I'm highly, highly, highly organized, um, probably even more so than I need to be, but labeling files, having my emails all folded correctly, um, having, you know, like I, like I had a cloud Dropbox folder years before the cloud ever really entered the conversation so that my files were accessible anywhere, anytime, 
everything is labeled by date. If you, if you go into any of my property files, um, you know, every file is labeled the same way. So it's, you know, month dot date dot year dash address dash what the file is. And so, you know, I mean, here I am 15 years later, if I need any piece of information at any point in my entire career, I can find it like that, which is, you know, I mean, when you have one property on the go, having a messy desk covered with paper doesn't feel like a big deal. But if you plan to scale and grow, having checklists, systems, and easily accessible information, um, if for me, it's been a critical aspect of being able to scale and grow smoothly. I think as a lesson here is for any new investor or newbie is commitment and, uh, and discipline. This is really, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, you have to have this always don't give up, always focus on your goals and it's going to come anyway. Uh, so next question is, uh, who was your influential mentor on your real estate career so far uh, on the selling part? Because your big, one of the, your biggest part is selling as a realtor and also on, yeah. on, on multifamily. So who was your uh, mentor in your career so far? Yeah, um, I would say one of my biggest role models was a guy named Don Campbell, who founded this organization called the Real Estate Investment Network. When I was young, he was speaking at events, writing books, having seminars. I thought, I thought he was a great personality, really smart, really charismatic, taught great content, learned a lot from him. Um, you know, so anybody listening, I'd recommend Don R. Campbell. Any book he's written about real estate is a really great book to read if you want to learn about real estate investing. Um, fantastic guy. Uh, so you're, you're focusing on uh, readings on real estate or generally anything about marketing and sales. So what is, was like your latest book um, you re read, grab your the, attention? The book that I'm, I'm reading, the last two books I read uh, were, I have it on I, the audio, the book's called Your Next Five Moves by Patrick um, something, Beth. Okay. And then I'm, <clears throat> I'll, I'll look, I'll, I'll look at the audiobooks. I listened to that one. And then in terms of like turning pages, physical reading, um, I'm reading principles, ah, Patrick, bet David, your next five moves, Patrick, bet David. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then I'm currently, I listened to that on audiobook. And then I'm currently reading principles by Ray Dalio, which unbelievable book. I, I would recommend that more. So for anybody who's building an organization, mm -hmm. um, it's not really, I think if I had read that book 10 years ago as a solo entrepreneur, it wouldn't have really landed as much as, you know, now that I've got an organization of close to 50 employees, um, it's, it's awesome. You know, I mean, it's, it's something I wish I had read when I had five employees, to be honest. So yeah. principles by Ray Dalio, big so, thumbs up. So what is your next move? Like, what is your, not next move? What is your five years plan? Basically what you're looking to do? Yeah. Yeah. Years? So my, I mean, I'm really focused on the real estate practice right now. Um, which is the realtor business. Hmm. Uh, we've, our Edmonton office is very well established. We're, you know, if we're not the top team in the city, we're one of the top teams in the city, depending on which quarter you're measuring by. Hmm. Um, we've expanded into Vancouver. So we've got a Vancouver office. Hmm. And then our next move is going to be to expand into Kelowna. One thing that we're in the process of getting into is project marketing. So like representing pre-sales on, you know, three, four, 500 unit buildings. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, from a portfolio growth perspective, again, it's just cherry picking the best of the best of the best deals that just show up and are too good to refuse. Whereas, you know, when I was in the middle of my career, 
I wanted to grow a big portfolio. I wanted to do, you know, one deal a month, one deal every two months. I wanted to raise capital like crazy, crazy, crazy. And so I was pushing to grow. Whereas now it's like, it's like, uh, it's like a tree with a lot of rings in it, you know, like one ring a year, one great acquisition, one property that's a good deal and just slow progressive growth when the right deals come up. That's kind of how my portfolio is moving. I think because you want to uh, be sure about the return for your investors, because you have already track of record and you want to keep this record with a constant return. It's a really good totally. approach. Yeah. Totally, so my, yeah. my final question will be how the people can follow your success. Um, I would say, I mean, I've been doing this for 15 years. So that's one thing that <clears throat> I think a lot of, especially younger people, you, I mean, Young people want quick results and they want, you know, big things to happen right away. Hmm. Um, and I was no different when I was in my twenties, I was like, I want to own all the properties and be this mega success overnight and push, push, push. But, you know, I mean, everything I've done has taken 15 years. And hmm. so there's no such thing as an overnight success hmm. and nobody's paying attention when you're learning and failing. And so, you know, you can spend five straight years where, you know, I, you know, you talked about talking to, to, 80 people, 100 people, 120 people, eventually you're going to talk to enough people that it's going to work. But nobody will be paying attention to you when you're learning, failing, and posting no results. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's two years, three years, you buy your first property, you have three or four properties, and oh my gosh, how did you do all of this? And so don't ever forget the part of the story where people spend often years with no actual results that's that that is anybody starting expect expect no tangible results for years not weeks not months not a quarter years and appreciate that the result that you get from that first couple of years maybe three years is just learning how to do it and building your resolve so that you know when somebody's ready to say yes you you know what to do um that's that's super super important 100%, 100%. Thanks a lot for your time today. And we're really happy to have you today with us. And it's my it was pleasure. Really I'm great, really, really uh, happy to chat. Yeah, it was really good information about especially Edmonton. And uh, we're really, we would ha be happy to bring you in again to the show. I'd love to be a guest again sometime. Thanks again for having me and for everybody that's listening. Um, I love talking about real estate. Don't be shy about reaching out. And I hope to chat with some of you soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you.